human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a love and ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to jtaylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and we're back here with Florian Siegfried. Uh, he's the manager of a very successful gold fund in, um, uh, in Switzerland, a uh, gold mining share fund, I should say. It's uh, Precious Capital Limited is his firm. And Florian, when we went to the break, we were, uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, the relative uh, – we were talking a little bit about the gold shares and what, uh, how you decide to invest in gold mining companies. I noticed that you, uh, in a slide presentation you made in Switzerland, you talked about the the relative, um, well, let's say the relative performance of different sectors uh, in your fund. Uh, and you were saying earlier that you know you believe the best value is to be found in those companies that are discovering gold and silver, or precious metals in the ground, and not from the producers. And so, uh, I think the performance that you showed here in a bar chart that really went from December 31st of 2008 through November 5th of 2010 really illustrates uh, your point and that uh, would would seem to be absolutely true. For example, the explorers, which would be the most risky uh, kinds of uh, grouping, I would think, uh, returned 126.6% during that time frame. Uh, on the other hand, the producers, the Tier 1 producers, I'm, I'm assuming, and I'm going to ask you for a definition of these different uh, groupings, but uh, Tier 1 producers, probably the larger producers, were uh, had gained 37.5%. So uh, I'd like to ask you if you could just define uh, for us Tier 1 producers, who would they be? So uh, we have this um, uh, scorecard, whatever you want to call it, we say like tier one is basically the the big names Newmont, mm-hmm. Merrick, Goldcorp, and so forth. Then uh, in tier two you get into a space of you know companies which probably have a production. We don't have a fixed definition uh, in terms of production or market capitalization or margins uh, what these companies are, but we just say. The, the tier one is basically the, the, the biggest names in the industry uh, producing uh, at least 1.5 million ounces or more. Then you get into the tier two space where you have names uh, probably like uh, Allied Gold or mm-hmm. uh, other companies which have a production of probably, let's say, uh, 500,000 ounces around this or uh, 500 to 300,000. And then the tier three is more the emerging producers, so companies that uh, are ramping up production, which have been uh, transformed from development uh, into producing companies, for example, or are just um, growing but still on a very uh, low scale. Probably these are companies we could say producing 50,000 ounces to 200,000 free. So one that I might be familiar with and that my subscribers would be familiar with would be Timmins Gold, perhaps it would fit in that group? 
Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Timmins um, uh, is uh, actually uh, our biggest position. Uh, we financed the company or co-financed the company in a placement back in uh, May of 2009, and uh, it has done very well for us. And, mm-hmm. uh, Let me ask you, while we're on this topic of Tier 3 producers then, some of these, and I happen to be very familiar with Timmins, although it is not currently a recommendation, I'm sorry to say, because uh, we sold out with a very nice profit on that stock, but uh, but would have done well if we'd hung on longer. But Timmins, I know, has lots of exploration potential, at least that's my that's my sense of it. Is that is that your sense of it with respect to Timmins? And would there be other Tier 3 producers there uh, that would be in a similar position? That is, they're small producers, but they've got loads of exploration potential and the uh, the ability, the logistical ability to grow their companies. Do you see a Tier 3 producers as companies that you might be hanging on to for a while because of that? Um, yes, because, um, uh, first of all, we think the valuations are still... Uh, very preferable compared to the bigger names when you mm-hmm. look at the prices like you compare a total market capitalization divided by the net asset value we think um, you find a lot of interesting uh, situations where you have a discount in these uh, mid-tier stocks mm-hmm. so uh, yes we think Timmins uh, it has a big um, piece of ground in Mexico in Sonora and um, the pit is growing, the grades are uh, getting better, the recent results were very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we think uh, the, the company can grow, uh, and it remains to be seen. But so far what we have seen uh, since we invested, um, uh, they were constantly making progress, the ounces have been growing, the mine was put back into production on time and on budget, so uh, that is already a very favorable situation, and of course the market capitalization is growing with this progress. Um, uh, this is one situation in the tier three category. Probably another name we have and we like is uh, Alexco uh, Resource. Mm-hmm. That is um, a silver company. Um, it has put back the Kino Hill Mine in the Yukon Territory back into production uh, lately. And uh, what we like about this company, it is a very high-grade silver producer with very low cost. It has some uh, 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 byproduct credits, basically, from uh, base metals. And um, the grades are fantastic, like um, 50 uh, ounces average grade, roughly. And that's the production grade uh, from Mm. Alexco. And also here, um, a lot of um, uh, um, uh, exploration upside. The company just raised uh, more money lately. So they are fully cashed up. Um, they have a very solid balance sheet. Um, uh, they have a, uh, their partner is Silver Wheaton, where they're buying a stream of the silver um, uh, cash flow. And we think the company had, has, has had a good run. It pulled back as of late. Um, but uh, we think that is a story where you have basically the purest silver producer in Canada in a good jurisdiction, um, a very solid balance sheet and good cash margins and a growing production profile for the next uh, coming years. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly a stock that I'm familiar with and uh, the listeners of this show would be familiar with because Chen Lin is a frequent guest on our show uh, talks about some of his picks, and I know that you you know Chen and talk to Chen from ten, time to time, and I know that that's yes. pretty much his one of his top picks anyway. So 
so that's the tier three producers. These would be the little guys that might do fifty to to a hundred, couple hundred thousand ounces. Then we're then the companies that have done best uh, on this chart that you showed uh, were the developers. They were up eighty six point eight percent during that time frame, and the explorers were up one hundred and twenty six point six percent. So talk to us about developers and maybe give us um, you know how you define developers as opposed to explorers. Well, developers is uh, just a pre-production. Uh, what we like is, um, again, a company that is basically cashed up, which has the financial resources to put a mine into production, which has the required uh, skill set, has a good team. Um, and, um, of course, it's always a very difficult situation to put a mine into production. So. We think development companies are interesting because they are trading at a discount to um, uh, to a producing mine, mm-hmm. but there is a lot of execution risk. So what we try to do is to track those companies as far as we can um, and to see where the risks really are to get a mine into production. Usually there are always surprises and something can always go wrong. The grade is not what it should be. Um, the throughput is probably lower than anticipated. Uh, the recoveries are probably lower, and the market. We, this is our experience. Usually reacts very sensitively to those kinds of events. Mm-hmm. So, an example that we had uh, in the development space was a, a, a Canadian company. It's called Anatolia Minerals. Mm-hmm. It had um, it has the Kepler asset in uh, Turkey. It is going to merge, however, with Avoca to form a new um, tier f- uh, two producer. But um, uh, this stock has done very well for us. Um, uh, they had some issues, but um, that has been discounted in the market, and we bought the uh, shares when they probably were like two dollars sixty. They moved up uh, to eight, and then they had a, a pullback back to six fifty. Uh, and we thought this is. A, a good situation to take also some profits because um, now you are at the stage where you have to prove yourself. Um, the market is expecting a certain number of ounces produced, is expecting a certain cash flow, and um, uh, in this situation we thought it probably is wise to lock in some profit before the year end and stay in cash. Okay, so your explorers then, uh, these would be uh, the companies that really haven't uh, moved towards establishing a, a uh, viable deposit yet, I suppose, would these be companies? Uh, just what, what is your definition of explorers? Um, well, explorers are just not producing. Uh, they're just putting the money into ground. Mm-hmm. They have the capital to uh, define a resource. Um, what their strategy is is sometimes not clear. Um, but what we favor in the explorations uh, camp is when you have companies which have a, a clear strategy to create value by putting money into ground. And if mm-hmm. they are successful, if they hit it right, um, uh, we think that is uh, the most um, promising but also the, the riskiest um, uh, part of the whole space. Uh, but exploration companies have been and will be more on the radar screen of the majors, so it will be like a hotspot because of the consolidation cycle, which we expect. Um, and of course, 
companies which can create value by or on a, uh, if we define like companies which have the capital to define a nuance in the ground for let's say 10 to 15 dollars so you drill you hit the gold and you spend per ounce of gold as a reserve or resource probably 10 to 20 dollars we think this is a significant discount and in some situations the market is not uh, realizing those kinds of values it's of course very risky but you can have the good surprises. We have, for example, one company which is also in our list. It's called Orzone, mm -hmm. the Burkina Faso, West African gold play. And it had a very low market cap when we invested, um, probably like 40, 50 million. Um, the co concern of the market was um, the grades have been very low in the past. Um, and then all of a sudden it became clear that the grades were almost doubled uh, close to uh, one gram per ton, and it's near-surface gold in the desert. Uh, so that gave a big push to those companies. Also, West Africa is, is a good place for mining. Ghana, uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, you have major deposits there, and all the major companies are involved. So we think this company, when they can grow their resource base to probably three, four, five million ounces, that's a potential takeover targets in the future. At what stage, uh, Florian, do you look to get into these uh, explorers? I mean, you're not looking at, at pure grassroots. Are you looking for the companies to have set down some some drill uh, some drill results, perhaps, and maybe some sense of the uh, of the dimensions of a structure of a gold bearing structure that would give you some sense of what the upside is, or, or just when do you look to get into the explorers? Um, yes, this is very rarely the case because it has the biggest risk and uh, it's hard for us to evaluate um, uh, those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. But what we uh, rather do is um, uh, we prefer also like brownfield exploration or companies which have actually picked up um, during, the, during the correction cycle in gold good assets uh, for cheap prices where you had already an idea on the geology and on the deposit but has never been probably uh, has never probably been drilled out, um, which has been shut down because dollar was at two hundred fifty dollars or three hundred a deposit that was not economic at this time. But when you have these kinds of old data where you can already say there is something in the ground, and you need a certain amount of capital to grow um, this resource to grow this reserve. Um, I think that takes already a lot of risk out of these companies and of mm -hmm. projects. And um, uh, Alexco is, uh, for example, uh, one case that would fit into this category. It has been an old mine uh, producing for more than 100 years. Uh, and um, it was already known. The data were available. And um, uh, the strategy of the company is to define the kinds of uh, potential which they have um, to grow an existing resource which is probably already available. Mm -hmm. um, do you, does your fund invest in gold bullion and, uh, or silver bullion at all or just strictly shares? Uh, no, we prefer shares and the reason for it is when you buy bullion, you basically buy the nominal gold price, so you uh, get your exposure. And we can't actually add value by just holding bullion in the fund. So
So um, uh, that is probably something that uh, differentiates us against other players. Um, we think the, the best upside is in the shares. And the reason is you have a leverage effect on these kind of companies because when the gold price is going up or um, is uh, in a bullish mood, which we expect long term, you get the revaluation from the one side increasing cash flows, increasing margins. And on the other side is when you have a company which is producing and exploring, the exploration assets, as they grow, also get a revaluation by the market because this reflects future cash flows. So we think always the combination of the two is, 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 is very essential to, uh, or should be essential for any investor to make a decent return. Mm-hmm. Now, you're primarily gold. I noticed a breakdown in terms of the metals, 83% gold, 11% silver, 1% copper, 5% other. Uh, do these other non-gold metals just sort of come along as byproducts with your with your companies that you invest in, or are well, you? I guess you did mention uh, Alexco as being a primary silver play, but for the most part, do you you look for gold mining shares uh, there, uh, and then sometimes some of these other metals come along, or do you actually look for copper or some other metals, uh, do, uh, other metals uh, mining companies as well? Um, yes. Uh, we we have the possibility to invest in all kinds of metals, so base metal, uranium, rare earths, uh, precious metals. But we still think that, that the long-term prospect is is the best in in precious metals. Of course, there are always situations uh, where we try to get some exposure as well. We think uranium is uh, of uh, interest right now. Um, uh, one stock we have is uh, Ur Energy. It has an uh, advanced uh, stage uh, project in Wyoming in the U.S. Um, this is a sector we follow. It has not been our core because it's hard to define, uh, uh, you know, producing mines in this, bay, in this stage, and there are only a few quality companies probably around uh, which have the capacity to get into production. Uh, in gold and silver, that's a little bit easier. But we think you have all these kinds of different cycles throughout the mining life and through the mining industry. So the, from a risk-reward potential in the long term, precious metals we favor, but um, uh, you have other uh, opportunities when we will have a correction in base metals, which I personally would expect. Um, uh, there are other trading opportunities there as well, copper, nickel, zinc, um, uh, rare earths and other things. Mm-hmm. But your primary focus is obviously uh, gold because of the macroeconomic uh, considerations we talked about. And I'd like to go back to talking a little bit more about some of the key markets. For example, uh, let's let's talk about the debt markets. You you were talking earlier about how uh, more and more Bernanke and other central banks will probably be buying debt in order to try to keep the long term rates down, do you think, uh, recently we did see some indication that the bond vigilantes were starting to wake up and that they were starting to uh, to say we need higher rates for our treasuries. Uh, do you think the bond vigilantes can ultimately win and, and um, you know, and, and people will say, well, gee, we don't want any of that paper anymore because uh, you're giving us 5% and our inflation rate is really high or or just as, or or the ability of the government to pay us back it's not there you don't have the tax revenues you don't have the ability all you're going to do is give us paper 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you think that we could be looking at, at um, a defiance of Mr. Bernanke's policies to keep interest rates low? Do you think the bond vigilantes, the market in general, will start to price, um, price long-term U.S. Treasuries lower and interest rates rising dramatically? I think so. That would be the normal reaction of the market. <laughs> mm-hmm. And every intervention in the free market has, is only going to happen on a temporary basis. It can't mm-hmm. last forever. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, well, the concern is uh, when you have a situation like in Europe or in the U.S. or in Japan where you have just all these governments which have uh, huge budget deficits, which uh, have huge debts, which have unfunded liabilities in the billions and trillions. Um, I mean, the the market has to realize sooner or later that how much money and how much of the taxpayer money will it take to pay off this debt. Mm -hmm. And then it should become clear that it is completely uh, irrational to believe that these governments can pay back uh, their creditors. I think it is still now a situation where we would have already a collapse in the debt market, but since we have this system where the national banks have actually left their role from guaranteeing pricing stability to become bailout uh, banks, um, uh, they are just intervening to maintain this whole system. But uh, the problem, of course, and I think we addressed it before, is Uh, Like in the case of Europe, the ECB, they have already a situation where they have such a a thin capital basis that I think the next step is what the market will realize is that the central banks by themselves, they are vulnerable as well. The ECB, um, its uh, capital is uh, probably around 3%. Its asset base was in the end of 2009, I checked this on the uh, official website of the bank, was about 134 billion euro. And in December, what was happening is they needed a capital increase. So (laughs) in other words, the governments, the uh, European member states, they had to provide liquidity to their own central Mm. bank. Mm -hmm. And I think when you have a next turn of a a financial crisis where you have a, uh, you know, where the bond market really tanks and long rates go up, the market will have to realize that these banks have enormous uh, interest rates uh, risk in their balance sheet, and that could easily lead to an undercapitalized uh, situation. And I think that uh, that is the the point where people really have to ask the question about what is uh, my paper worth? Because on the one side of the balance sheet, of course, you have all these assets, government bonds, non-marketable securities, uh, virtually no gold, and on the other side, you have the paper, you have the excess reserves, which are held by the banks. So I think it's, it, that will be the next uh, major uh, uh, thing that could happen, that people start to look closer at the central bank's balance sheet, not only on the commercials. Mm-hmm. So you see us in a gigantic, um, let's say, sovereign debt bubble right now, and that that could be the next bubble to burst? that could set off a deflation? Um, I think, yeah, right now it's still growing. Um, uh, the, the nations are bailing out each other with the help from their national bank. Um, but when you look at uh, the situation of this uh, Euroshield, for example, it was oversubscri- oversubscribed nine times. Uh, and 
that was just possible because the banks by themselves wouldn't probably have bought those kinds of bonds uh, because they have a lot of uh, risk uh, in it by nature. So what happened, of course, it was monetized first by the central banks and, um, well, first it was bought by the banks, it was monetized by the central banks and money was created out of thin air. That can last some more time, but eventually it will, it will end, and I think it will end very badly. <laughs> well, Florian, earlier in today's show, uh, we had a guest um, named Dave Skrika, who is, like many of our gold bug uh, colleagues, uh, and he's also an Austrian-leaning thinker. He, he believes that we're going to uh, inevitably face a hyperinflation. We've had other people on our show like economist John Williams who thinks the same thing. Um, do you see, what do you think the prospects of hyperinflation, a hyperinflated U.S. dollar are at this point in time? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, inflation is probably going to happen in the near term because when you define it as an expansion of credit, this is what's happening now. But in the longer term, I doubt whether we will have a hyperinflation. And uh, mm -hmm. the single uh, key, I would say, is when you have a, a credit-based system like we have, where you have uh, banks as acting as the creditors and they lend money to the private sector, they will, they will actually only lend as far as their money maintains the purchasing power of the mm -hmm. loan. So when you get into when the market is expecting increasing inflation, I would say the natural reaction of the banking sector would be to, to tighten credit. When you have a deflation of asset prices, um, uh, then, of course, no bank is willing to provide more uh, debt uh, for the speculators. And this, uh, this is, I think, where really the deflation could uh, set in again and um, uh, the debt markets will be closed. Uh, or will shut down for a moment, for a while, uh, and lending will just cut, will just be cut down like we had in 2008. Mm -hmm. Well, we certainly did see uh, 2008, and one of the one of the aspects of that 2008-2009, uh, let's say, asset implosion was that the real price of gold, and you talked about this earlier, the real price of gold rose very dramatically, and I like to use the Rogers Raw Material Fund, which I use frequently to, to show that it's right before Lehman Brothers in the summer of 2008, an ounce of gold would have bought only about 15 or 16 percent of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. It rose to 44 percent. It's now around around 39 percent. So this would be, uh, and this has historically been the case in many different uh, uh, credit implosions in the past, We've seen a major uh, rise in the real value of gold and then gold mining profits and a surge in the industry. I've been saying to my subscribers and in the talks that I make that I think we're in the buying opportunity of a lifetime for gold mining shares. Would you share that, uh, that enthusiasm? Um, yes, so I would share this um, uh, view. Um, first of all, when you look at the, the, the role of gold today, when you look at the institutional portfolios of an insurance uh, company or from a pension fund, um, you get to a, an average allocation. I think in the U.S. it's at 0.7 or 0.8 percent. Mm. So it's virtually inexisting. Mm. And the, the whole sector in terms of the gold mining companies is, of course, even much uh, smaller. So compared to 
other bubbles like uh, the internet bubble uh, where you had uh, really big allocations in the whole sector of probably 10, 15, 20% be or far away from this in this uh, situation where we are right now. And I wouldn't share the argument that we are in a boat bubble, in a, in a, in a gold bubble uh, mm. speak, just when we look at the dimensions. So I think the opportunities here in the long term are here. Yes, I think the whole sector will gain in allocation. Um, uh, the institutional investors, which are still uh, not covering the sector, um, uh, they will probably only come in when they see from the mining industry that the whole sector is gaining dividend power, that they have increasing cash flows. But that was not the case in the past uh, six or seven years because the margins have been quite stable because you had rising costs as well. Mm-hmm. So we think now, since uh, the failure of Bear Stearns, where the credit market has been unwinding, um, this picture has changed. Now we have growing dividends in the majors. We have growing cash flows. We have um, uh, mergers, acquisition, and consolidation, and still a lot of institutions are absent uh, from the market. This is uh, mm-hmm. our view that we get in Switzerland at least. Um, there are professional players, but there are a number of uh, big funds, um, and the generalists are not yet in the market. So mm-hmm. I would share your argument, yes, it is a long-term buying opportunity. Virtually a very small amount of gold uh, money has allocation has gone into gold shares, and a lot of it's going into the ETFs, which weren't around before, so that may be one of the reasons why the professionals are so slow to go into the gold shares. Uh, certainly an ETF is easier to evaluate, perhaps, than, than uh, you know digging as hard as you guys do uh, at your uh, uh, precious metals capital fund, how you guys look so hard and, and do so much diligent work in terms of uh, figuring out whether or not you want a company in your portfolio. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you one more question, if I can. This relates to uh, the analytical work of Bob Hoy, and I know you're familiar with Bob Hoy and Bob Hoy's work, but Bob has gone back uh, and looked at these major credit deflations in the past, and he thinks we're in the sixth largest credit deflation, or, or the, sixth, the sixth of these major credit deflations going back the last 300 years, the first four being UK-centric, this one and the previous one in the 1930s being US dollar-centric. Bob makes a point with respect to uh, the real price of gold always rises dramatically during these episodes, as we were just saying, uh, and, and so mining profits are very, very strong. Gold mining profits are very, very strong. But Bob also uh, makes an observation with respect to the senior currency. He suggests that the senior currency becomes the strongest currency um, uh, because of this uh, sort of short covering. You know, when the system goes into reverse, if most of the debt is in U.S. dollar terms, then people have to reverse the trade and go out and buy dollars to repay their creditors. Do you, uh, do you buy that argument? And if so, do you think the dollar could remain the world's reserve currency? Or do you think that we're going to have some sort of restructuring of the world's reserve currency, perhaps with gold or silver or, or some combination of the two, perhaps backing a new dollar? What, what, just take a guess in terms of uh, what you think might happen in the future, because the system is clearly breaking down. How is it going to be resolved? Um, yes, for the, um, I, I would share this argument. Um, I think when you have like asset price inflation, the, and the ingredient to achieve asset price inflation is the depreciation of the dollar, then uh, 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 you know uh, uh, 
asset prices which come down will most likely result in the opposite of a rising dollar because you have forced liquidation. And since the dollar was used as the major currency, as, or as you mentioned, the senior currency, uh, where you get your credit, a cut down in credit, you have to buy back, uh, you have to sell your assets, you have to serve your loans in dollars, so that could push up the dollar. And we think very recently, what we saw also last year, when the dollar was really collapsing, the dollar index came off dramatically by November, and that also, in our view, marked a, a cyclical peak in, in, in commodities mm-hmm. overall, we would say. Uh, and any rebound where you got a stronger dollar could, on the other, on the other hand, really result in uh, lower asset prices. Mm-hmm. So we think the U.S. dollar has the potential in the meantime to strengthen against uh, most other currencies and it has been oversold, that was our opinion. So a rising dollar is uh, bad for asset prices. And um, in the long term, I think the discussion that is going on or has now started um, uh, with uh, the Fed governor, I think it was uh, Thomas Hoenig from the Kansas Federal Reserve Mm -hmm. and from the World Bank uh, chief Zerlich, they at least mentioned that gold should have a certain role uh, and should be considered in any future monetary system. And I think this discussion that has now started uh, by some very prominent uh, people is going to continue as the crisis is likely going to deepen in the future. Mm -hmm. So we are yet in a very early point, but I think in the long term, um, uh, you know, a paper system where you give where you have the possibility to create unlimited uh, numbers of paper dollars that's coming to an end and people will seek for an alternative and i could imagine that the market will eventually decide what money we want is it mm-hmm. paper or is it a hard money and mm-hmm. the hard money has to be backed by something so i think gold and silver will eventually participate in some kind of these uh, future uh, roles. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine, Florian, that as uh, as that becomes reality, as the markets force the policymakers' hands that, uh, by, by pricing gold and silver and these uh, real money assets higher, that those uh, who have been early to the game, those who have purchased their gold shares and their gold and their silver, will be in a much better position than those who have not, uh, who have continued to trust the policymakers and believe that paper money is the best money. Unfortunately, we're out of time, Florian. I think we could go on and on for a long, a long time. You have so much uh, to talk to us about. But uh, before we close, let me just ask you, uh, how can people track your fund and how it's doing, and, and how can they invest if they, if they so desire? Um, uh, well, we have a website. It's www.preciouscap.com. Um, uh, that is, uh, you can read all our reports, our views, uh, our newsletters. Um, uh, but we are not registered in the United States, so mm-hmm. uh, we have a license in Switzerland. Um, but to share our views, um, uh, that's uh, that's uh, something uh, one can consider. We also have another website. It's called Gold Desk, GoldDesk.ch, where we try to um, uh, provide some. 
all the, the important topics on the monetary and on the gold and the resource base. So we collect probably like 15, 20 articles on a day and give a short um, summary of what's going on and to get a better understanding of the dynamics of the market. Well, thank you so much, Florian, uh, for all you've shared with us today. Uh, wish we could go on, but that's all the time we got for now. So, But folks, don't go away because I'll be coming back to you with some exciting companies I recently interviewed in Vancouver. Now, I think they could be uh, some real gems here, and uh, three of them I will have uh, told my subscribers about this weekend, and then I'll share uh, those ideas with you in the next segment. Don't go away. I'll be right back. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have uh, with me today Ted Ohashi uh, talking to me from British Columbia. I met up with Ted last weekend when I was in, uh, in British Columbia at the, uh, at the show, the Cambridge House show uh, in Vancouver. Uh, Ted Ohashi is associated with a company that I have become associated with, and it's called Investment Pitch, and I would urge you to go to investmentpitch.com Check out some of the companies, the clients of investmentpitch.com. This is a a firm that is using sort of the latest technologies, the latest IT technology, visual communications. You know, if you don't like to read a lot and you like to look at pretty girls or attractive people, you might want to go to to investmentpitch.com. 
uh, and, and let somebody talk to you and give you the story that way. More and more people are preferring that. We have all this, uh, all of these smartphones you can walk around on and look at your, uh, look at the internet and, and, uh, videos and so forth. So that's the trend. And investment pitch is, uh, uh, you know, is, is representing clients that need to get their story out to the market. Uh, and so Ted uh, Ohashi is an, uh, on the advisory board of investment pitch, as am I. And Ted and I met up. Uh, we also did a number of videos as I uh, face the analyst videos from the studios of, of investment pitch this last weekend. Uh, so Ted has been with, uh, has known Barry Morgan, who started Investment Pitch for a number of years. Uh, and Ted has also been an analyst. He's been a securities analyst, uh, has uh, he uh, headed up a mutual fund uh, in, in Vancouver, uh, or in British Columbia at least. And he has also been in the media business. Uh, he used to be, I do a daily talk um, or an analysis of the markets uh, for CKNW, which is uh, one of, uh, if not the largest a radio station in uh, in Canada. Ted, as I said, was a financial analyst, a research manager, uh, director uh, for the largest Western Canadian-based securities firm, and uh, headed up a mutual fund. Well, Ted, uh, welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hey, thanks, Jay. Nice to see you again, or nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you as well. We had a delightful lunch. Thank you very much. Uh, there in Vancouver, uh, mostly seafood. Of course, the West Coast is just great <laughs> for that. Well, let's stop babbling about seafood and let's talk about uh, one of the clients that uh, is an investment pitch called Caldera Resources that you brought to my attention. I think people might want to take a look at this uh, at this company and this stock. I'll let you talk about it, but just basically, uh, the company trades on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol CDR. The last I checked a few minutes ago, it was selling at 18 cents. There's 49 million shares, so it's just a little under uh, under a 9 million market cap. But, Ted, you were telling me this is a company that has a historical resource, a fairly sizable one. Tell our listeners a little bit about Caldera Resources. Yeah, well, uh, thanks, Jake. Uh, Caldera is a Canadian company, um, and uh, strategically what management wanted to do was avoid sort of the, the trials and tribulations of grassroots investment. So they went around the world looking for um, places where they could get a head start uh, on uh, that uh, exploration. And uh, the place where they found this particular property is uh, a country called Armenia. Uh, Armenia is a former uh, Soviet republic. Uh, but uh, is currently uh, uh, an independent republic, has its own government, uh, elected government, and is open for business. Um, and so what they found was a property that had been drilled uh, during the, the Soviet era uh, and had proven up under uh, Soviet uh, standards uh, a resource of about a million ounces of gold and about 50 million ounces of silver. Now, this is not what we call, you know, the NI-43-101 resource, uh, but it is an NI-43-101 historic resource. Um, and so they're in the process now of, of, of drilling to try and establish uh, that those former figures were correct. Um, and so far, uh, they've been successful at that. Mm -hmm. Well, Ted... Um well, this, I mean, if, if my math is right here, we were looking at uh, uh, 50 million ounces of silver would be pretty close to uh, the equivalent of a million ounces of gold. 
So the gold yeah. equivalent would be somewhere close to two million ounces, possibly if, as you, if as you say, the the uh, more rigorous requirements of forty three one one up are upheld. Uh, what, how does this stack up uh, compared to some of the other companies, perhaps in that region, that might have a forty three one one? So that investors might be able to say, well, what is the upside on this thing if, uh, you know, if if the forty three one one does come through uh, to con- uh, to confirm the historical numbers? Right. Well, so, you know, that, of course, is a million-dollar question, and it always is. But at least here, they're, they're not off doing exploration um, somewhere where it's, it's completely unknown. The area has been uh, actively drilled and explored, as I said, in the Soviet era. So as they go ahead and, and try and uh, convert uh, that historic resource into a current uh, compliant resource, um, then the company's share should do well, assuming that they're successful. Uh, there's there's a, a well-known company uh, in uh, Armenia uh, called Lydian. Uh, Lydian is um, uh, probably uh, getting up to around a $200 million market cap. Um, and, uh, you know, they are, um, they do have a 43-101 resource, so they're, they're very different in that respect. Uh, but um, Caldera is in a position that uh, uh, as they begin to prove up uh, their resource and bring it current, uh, and assuming that they're able to do that, then, you know, the direct comparison would point to much higher market cap values for, uh, for Caldera. How many ounces did you say Lydian has? Well, I, I don't have a current number, yeah. but it, okay. it's probably in the uh, million and a half to two million okay. ounce range. And their market cap is uh, several fold larger, many fold larger than what yes, many, uh, many Cal- resources is. Of course, uh, you know, no two companies are alike. There's always differences. Uh, yep. You know, we're just we're just really looking at sort of a ballpark. But it, it strikes me, Ted, uh, as a person who looks at these junior mining companies and this sort of a bull market that Caldera it just seems to me like it, it could be very undervalued, I, I, I think. So yeah, this is, well, a, is this a client I, of investment pitch, Ted? Yeah, I, I, I like to do that as well, is kind of have an overview, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so don't try and sort of predict what the resource is going to be down to the very ounce. But just generally, if this company is able to begin proving up some of that resource, then obviously <laughs> their market cap is going to go much higher. Right. Well, I, I think that people should, uh, you know, should go to investment pitch. I think there's probably the news flow from Caldera will be, will be passed through. Uh, at least some of the more important news items will be passed through uh, investment pitch. I would imagine, of course, people can use other sources as well to, uh, to, to follow this company. It's not one that's on yep. my list yet, Ted, but it's one that I think looks very interesting and might very yep. well make it into my newsletter. Uh, yep. We have Roger Wiegand with us. Roger, are you there? Roger's here. Roger, um, say hello to Ted. Ted Hi, Ohashi. Hi, Roger. How are you? Good. You know, you guys live in the same part of the world up there, and in, in a part of the world that I think is very attractive to the Northwest. Roger's down in Washington. Uh, Roger, could you give me uh, a little, give our listeners a little recap of today's market action? Where the where the equity markets finish, and, and then maybe we got some time for the bond markets and, and precious metals markets. Well, the S and P's today uh, had a good rally. Uh, along with the Dow, and the reason for that primarily was uh, UPS had a good pop today 
after reporting an excellent quarter for the last quarter for 2010. And I attribute that to the fact that uh, more people are buying Christmas gifts on the Internet. And then, of course, UPS and FedEx have to deliver the goods. Consequently, they, they've had a very good quarter. Their stock went up a considerable amount. This was a primary driver along with a couple of others. Uh, uh, Freeport MacMoran and Aluminum Company of America also had a good day. So the Dow today was uh, 12,035. It finally broke through. That 12,000 was resistance. It's supported now at 1250. So the trend for stocks in the broader markets is up. The S&Ps today, uh, 1307 last price up 21 points. Uh, the floor was 1285, new resistance 1315. So generally the broader markets are up. Next thing is, is that uh, the dollar was down today and that was a, a major situation in that <clears throat> Uh, support under the dollar, main support at 77.50 gave way. Last price on dollar futures, 77.12, down about three-quarters of 1%. Uh, the next floor for the dollar is 76.50. Then correspondingly, when the dollar goes down, uh, the commodities usually go up, which they did. Gold, silver, uh, Swiss francs, the Canadian, and the euro all were in the green today. Mm. Uh, we're looking like for the for gold... We've got a bottom now. Our last after-hours price, 1341, uh, opened at 1333. The high was 1344, and the low was 1326. So the trading range in gold went wider, $18 today. We think a new rally has started. Silver's going even faster. Last price, 2850. Uh, the low was 2785. The high, 2860. We think silver will be back at $30 probably within the next 10 days. Uh, also, with the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Middle Eastern problems, uh, oil had a pop and went all the way to high resistance at 92.50. It touched 92.45. It did come back a little bit on profit-taking and also the fact that uh, things appear to be calming down a little bit in Egypt, although there's still a lot of turmoil. Uh, Mubarak's going to resign in September. There's going to be a new election and I think that took the heat out of some of the problems there. So all in all, it looks like it's real strong for the markets, precious metals and commodities. Uh, the grains are very high and going higher. All right. Well, certainly the, com the, uh, the inflation play, the risk trade, as they like to call it after Lehman Brothers' uh, failure, is, uh, is, is certainly still on. The equity markets uh, look very bullish right now for the moment. Uh, Roger, I'm wondering, um, you mentioned Freeport Macron having a good day. We always, I always think copper Freeport, Freeport Macron. Of course, it's a very large gold producer, too. Uh, gold was up. Was you know if base metals were stronger today? Yeah, they were, and that's the reason Alcoa went up a little bit. Uh, keep in mind, Jay, that Freeport at one time was uh, uh, 55 or 45 percent gold with a balanced copper, and they bought a big copper company, and now they're only 10% gold and 90% copper. Oh, okay. But the good news that drove them today is copper did, in fact, hit a brand-new high. Mm -hmm. Copper hit a brand-new high. I'm going to get you the price here one second. It's uh, high-grade copper, $4.55, almost mm. a dime up. That's a, wow. very, that's a very big move. Well, that is a big move. Ted, you you live on the other side of the border there, and your currency is getting stronger. Does that make you happy? Well, it sure does. We, we talk about that all the time. In fact, uh, 
My son and I uh, just a couple of weeks ago went down to Bellis Fair uh, in Bellingham and did some shopping. So, yeah, it, it's all good for us. Well, I'll tell you, when I go up there, it's not good for me because uh, all of a sudden I've got to I've got to bring out more of those dollars. And then, of course, you guys tack on that huge sales tax on top of everything as well. <laughs> Let me ask you, uh, Ted, and we got about two minutes left to go here, both uh, Ted and Roger. <clears throat> I don't know, Ted, if you'd have an opinion about this, but the U.S. bond market, we've had a bull market that started in 1982. And when I look at a long-term chart of the 30-year bond in the U.S., I don't see this thing breaking down and, I mean, it's broken down from its highs, um, but, you know, you, you draw a line through the base, and it looks like we're still in a bull market for, uh, for, the, for the bond market. And yet we have these commodity prices rising. Dave Skarika was on with us earlier today, talked about uh, the inflation rate definitely is much higher than what the government lets on it is. Uh, in another minute and a half or so, any opinion, um, Ted, uh, with respect to the U.S. long bond market? Do you think... How long is this going to last, or will the bond vigilantes come in sooner or later and, uh, and, and drive some sense into the U.S. bond market? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that's the battle that's shaping up, uh, which is the one that you mentioned, as between uh, U.S. inflation and U.S. interest rates. Um, right now, the economies are still so weak that uh, I think the U.S. Uh, regulators are doing everything they can uh, to maintain as low an interest rate position as they can uh, even though that means, uh, you know, the U.S. dollar uh, will uh, remain soft. Um, but ultimately, uh, when uh, the economies begin to strengthen a little bit and uh, inflation then uh, begins to happen in the economy rather than in uh, the financial and commodity markets, uh, then I think you'll see uh, U.S. particularly long range. I'm sorry, Ted. I'm there. I just uh, my headset I got flipped off my ears. Uh, can you oh, hear that's me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I, uh, I was Roger. just uh, concluding that um, I think what we're going to see now, if we look a year or two down the road, uh, is uh, as the economies begin to strengthen, uh, then uh, inflation is going to move into kind of the consumer and manufacturing areas, uh, whereas right now it's been focused totally on uh, financial and commodity markets. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and as the economies begin to come back, as uh, inflation goes up, uh, then interest rates are going to have to start moving higher. Well, thank you very much, Ted. Un unfortunately, Roger, I'm going to have to uh, let you tell us what you think about the bond markets next week because I've only got 30 seconds. I've got to wrap up here. Thanks to both of you for coming on. Uh, we want to remind our listeners that we do have promotional uh, one-time only trial subscriptions, call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to our website at miningstocks.com. Next week, we're going to have Peter Grandich and no doubt a surprise guest or two uh, to help us fill in the three-hour uh, show. But uh, Peter has some very interesting views on the market, and I think he's been right more often than he's wrong, so I'm really looking forward to hearing from Peter. Also probably be talking to the management of American Manganese next week, uh, and, uh, well, uh, that's about all for this week. But I do want to thank, as always, those people who have made this show uh, possible. Logistically, uh, my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Columbia, operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Thanks to each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America business channel. Till next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time is